0: This is Brian Reisman. Welcome to Side Jams, which is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. With this episode, I'm celebrating the show's one year anniversary. Guitar wizard Joe Satriani has forged a lifelong career out of his six string adventures that have spanned 18 studio albums. He sold over 10 million units globally and racked up 15 Grammy Award nominations. It's about time he won one, too. He has also done two studio albums and performed with the fun classic rock supergroup Chickenfoot and he created and remains the heart of the 24-year-old G3 tour, which always pairs him with two other guitar maestros. His latest solo effort, Shapeshifting, is Satch's most diverse offering in years. It mixes in influences like 80s hard rock, surf rock, reggae, ambient, even a touch of jazz. He still displays plenty of passion and energy after all this time. Outside of his musical focus, Satriani loves science fiction and has been delving into painting, which he does alone, and in collaboration with the LA-based visual art team, Scene 4. For this episode of Side Jams, I spoke with a guitarist via Skype at his home base in San Francisco. We delved into those two endeavors, as well as his childhood UFO club, his experiences recording at George Lucas' Skywalker Ranch, our thoughts on the future of pandemic movies, and the sci fi story Crystal Planet, which he has co authored with fellow musician Ned Evitt. Satch and I have often discussed his love of sci fi over the years, but it was nice to go more in depth for this episode. Well, welcome, Joe. Thanks for joining me on Side Jams. Thank you. It's great to be here. I know we've spoken before about science fiction, and you actually—I know—are a big China Melville fan. You read a lot of his stuff. Yes, yeah. And what I what I found is interesting is I didn't realize he actually wants to write books across multiple genres and not just science fiction.
1: Yeah, I, I and I've tried some of them. Some of them, it was rather jarring to uh, to get into some of those uh, books. I'm thinking of one. I I don't remember the title and I I just it threw me because one of the things I love about his style is his command of the English language and how well it uh, melds together with crazy science fiction. It's just when when somebody can really use the English language to its fullest, it really helps the science fiction world, you know, that trying to describe to you and, and, and make credible. And then when he started uh, going into other genres, it it almost felt like, "Hey, who's stealing China's stuff?" You know, <laughs> it, <laughs> it was kind of odd. And uh, you know, you go back to Perdido Station, and and you go, "No, this is what I like. I like the the marriage of, you know, his extreme talent as a writer and wielder of the language uh, with the fantastical science fiction." But anyway. Uh, all is forgiven. I still think he's pretty amazing.
0: Well, I mean, science fiction has played a big role in your life. Obviously, a lot of your album titles, Not of This Earth, Surfing with the Alien, Crystal Planet, Time Machine, Is There Love in Space? Even something like Shapeshifting, your new album, which I'm enjoying. Um, all has that has that vibe to it. Is, do, do you actually, when you're composing a lot of these songs, is there sci-fi imagery in your head, or is it just a lot of times you come up with the titles afterward?
1: Almost always the titles are there first. And uh, sometimes they they stay even if they're a bit vague. And other times they get um, edited down because they're way too long. They're not really like song titles. They're more like sentences or paragraphs, even longer. Sometimes there's a drawing or two that goes with it. Right. And, uh, you know, in the end, I know I'm making a musical album. And so there are some conventions that help Get the music into people's minds, and so you know I don't want to tax their attention by giving a paragraph for a song when it when three words might really sum it up, so I try to do my homework and and really whittle it down to its most essential form i am thinking about because of where I'm sitting in my studio now and I'm looking up against this one sound absorption pedal above it was um this board and I was tacking up a couple of notes uh, here and there as the record was getting written um, to keep me focused on things. And one of them uh, was a poem by Ralph Waldo Emerson Hmm. called River. And uh, I I forget how I came upon it, but I just found it one day when I was looking for something else. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I mean, it just was so beautiful and so evocative. And I printed it and I just sort of you know tacked it on that wall there and i just remember being in the studio writing music and and i was staring at that poem and i i focused on those first two sentences and the second half of the second sentence is hear the blue river i just thought oh that's that's so perfect you know if it was a song that would be more evocative than calling it the river but for a poem the river is great and uh, anyway, one thing led to another, and I, I find myself writing a reggae song uh, about memories of, of being a kid and, and uh, being in the country. It's interesting how the process of writing music will be hand in hand with something uh, that is written or something that you see, like a movie or uh, an image or something that you dream of, and you think, well, you know, that's not possible, but what if it was? And how would I describe it to somebody? And what if I only had music to make that description? So, this is a insight into how strangely my mind works when I'm when I'm writing music. Well,
0: yeah, I hear the Blue River on the new album definitely stands out for the reggae thing. I mean, this is actually probably your most diverse album since Unstoppable Momentum.
1: You're right. Yeah, I I, I definitely wanted it to be that way. Um, I, you know, I came off the What Happens Next tour which I, I always felt we never toured enough, but there were, there were all sorts of reasons why uh, behind that that were, that were just sort of boring and domestic. But um, uh, we finished in Pune, India, which was a great place to finish a tour. It was just a really fantastic outdoor festival, 40,000 people, and I just remember thinking that you know, it was a fantastic way to end that tour. And I knew coming back that for the next year I'd be not only writing and recording the album, whatever that was going to be. I had no idea, but I'd also be going out on the experience Hendrix tour with uh, Doug Pinnock and Kenny Aronoff. Yeah. You know, I was set up to do something really different and I was being stimulated in a different way. Let's put it that way because of uh, the the work um, that I was going to be doing. Anyway, uh, I don't know. I got off on a tangent there because I started thinking about last year (laughs) how crazy. No, no.
0: I mean, I, I do the same thing. I'm very ADD. I'm like, squirrel, you know, and then I, but I, but in our minds, I get, the, I get the whole thread. I get where it's going. And I mean, you've been a lifelong sci-fi fan. Yes. And I was about surfing with the alien because you obviously were one of the first rockers to have like that kind of comic book character on your cover. I know Anthrax had Judge Dredd uh, mm-hmm. in the eighties. Have you read any of the recent surf, silver surfer comics?
1: No, no. And well, there's good reason why, but, um, we're you're busy. That when i was a kid as a little kid i remember there was this one oh, what would you call it a season when you're you know when you're like under 10 years old you know phases go through really fast they last like 3 weeks at a time or something but um i do remember being part of a ufo club and what was that it was just me and about four other Crazy, you know, eight year old kids or something that decided that we if we put together our own UFO club, that we could solve the mystery of UFOs. We, we had our office in the basement of one of our friends and we had a big map and we I don't know what we did. But, you know, this was the time when uh, the, the scariest thing you could watch might be Twilight Zone on, on television or um, you know, the, all the other TV shows that were on at the time that were all feeding off of the frenzy you know started it in the in the late 40s uh the outer limits about ufo's uh a great thing to read for people is the demon haunted world i think that's the title of it uh, a great book about you know how this this uh, fixation on ufo's and things is, is just all based on our fear of the unknown and uh, it it's a great book to read if anybody wants to um w- wants to get a different perspective on that but I should explain to you because as people ask me this all the time, they they bring up *Not of This Earth* as if I was trying to describe myself. But so many people don't <laughs> know that movie, right? You you know that movie? I hope it was a it was a B movie. I'm thinking it was made in the early '60s, maybe '59 yeah. something. Was
0: it remade also?
1: I don't think so. At least I've never seen it. And uh, th- I know this is really ancient history for most people, but uh, when I was in. Uh, high school in the early 70s, I was in this band, uh, I was in a couple of bands, but this one band, we basically uh, were over our friend's house all the time rehearsing, doing Beatles songs. He was a Beatle nut. So that's all we ever did is just rehearse Beatles songs for some reason. And uh, it was quite innocent. We'd rehearse upstairs. And then, you know, uh, his mother would, uh, he was the drummer, Mike Orculio, and his mother would yell up, hey, sandwiches, you know, and we'd go downstairs in the kitchen, turn on the television and, you know, eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches during our break. It was really, uh, you know, leave it to be, we like, but, um, on the television, on the few channels that we would get back then, uh, channel nine, I think it was in New York, uh, would play the worst movies over and over again, black and of warm, course. Of course yeah. yeah. And this one movie for some reason was on for months while I was in this band and it was called not of this earth and we basically memorized it each of us had a character and we we could reenact this film for anybody if they asked and so anyway fast forward years later i move out to california i'm making a new album and i have this funny song and it's just like the weirdest song ever and i'm just so excited about releasing weird music to people you know and this is after me being in a power pop band for about four or five years. So I was ready to strike out and do something strange. And I, and I decided to call the the song not of this earth and to use it as uh, the title track, mainly because I thought uh, to myself, you know, where's Danny and Steve and Mike that my band members, I haven't been in touch with them since I came out to California And I couldn't figure out how to do it. There's no internet or cell phones or anything like that. So I figure, I got an idea. I'm going to put out this album all by myself on my own record label. It'll be called Not of This Earth. And when they see it, they'll see on the back my address of the record company, which is basically my apartment. So (laughs) then they'll reach out to me, and I'll finally get to reconnect with my friends from high school. That was the main reason for doing it. So... As the record comes out and the career ramps up, people keep asking me about that, and I know it's a long, boring story, but I keep trying to explain to them, hey, I'm not like this total crazy sci-fi nut who thinks that I'm actually not of this earth. You've got it all wrong. I was just trying to say hi to my friends from high school, but that (laughs) story. Doesn't really play out. <laughs> it, people get old, you know. They they kind of get disappointed. Like, really? That's all it is.
0: I you mean, you're not from another planet, really.
1: Well, I am from Long Island, and you know, for most parts of the country, and it's another planet.
0: <laughs> it, it's it's different out here. Uh, that's for sure. Funnily yeah. enough, okay. So, not of this Earth. Came out in 1957, directed by Roger Corman, remade by Jim Wynorski, who worked for Roger Corman's company in 1988, and it was Tracy Lord's first non-porn role.
1: Oh, my God.
0: <laughs> I knew I knew that title. I'm sure I saw Not of This Earth as a kid, because in Boston, I you know, would watch Creature Double Feature, which yeah. actually used some music from ELP, a very kind of uh, uh, sinister uh, passage from Carnival.
1: Yes, Carnival 9, yeah.
0: <laughs> and I didn't know that until about 10 years ago. So, yeah, it's funny how all this stuff comes around. And... <laughs> And <laughs> now, now you're connected to Tracy Lords. Um, oh my
1: God, <laughs> that's
0: hilarious. Um, so, also, when was what was the earliest science fiction you read, and then when did you discover China Melville?
1: Oh, it's a funny connection. Um, we had there was a uh, a family experiment, as I like to call it, where uh, my wife and and I and my son decided to get a four legged pet. You know, we'd had every kind of pet you can think of, and I was kind of lobbying against getting a dog or a cat because we, you know, half of every year we tour and starting when my son was four, we took him with us on tour. So, you know, we'd be gone for two months of the to- at a time that would go on for about a year and a half until, you know, the album cycle would start up again and I'd be home for six months. And so I kept saying, you know, we can't have a dog. It's like, you know, where are we going to put it, you know, <laughs> when we're out on tour? Anyway, we tried it for a while. And uh, that sets up us needing to get a dog trainer because this this beautiful little dog that we had, this Yorkshire Terrier, uh, had a a funny problem of like peeing all the time. And and Mm. somebody convinced us that it was, you know, it was a mental problem. Right. And I'm thinking, oh, that's I thought it was a really strange thing anyway. So someone said, you got to talk to this guy. He's like, you know, the dog whisperer kind of guy. And so he comes over the house and he's trying and he's, you know, convinced that the dog is just nervous or doesn't n- understand authority or something like that. I, I totally did not like what was going on. And, and uh, eventually mm-hmm. his methods were totally discredited because it turned out the poor dog had a genetic problem and just needed like eye drops or something like that. Of twice. Uh, and uh, anyway, the other thing about this uh, very cool guy who was the dog trainer was that he. Uh, was a sci-fi nut and he was the one who you know looked at me like what do you mean you don't know who china melville is <laughs> and so you know while he was trying to train the dog uh we would talk about writers that we really like i at the time i think i was just crazy about dan simmons i just really loved everything that he was writing come to think of it dan does that you know, he goes into other areas of writing in a more graceful way perhaps that, than china
0: melville but um there you go. What are the big distinctions would say, like Dan Simmons and China Millville, in terms of writing style and topics?
1: Oh, it just seems more natural to me. Like a story like uh, one of uh, Dan's early ones, Carrie and Comfort, you know, that's, that's a very interesting story and, and beautifully written and it's light. I mean, from a sci-fi point of view— it's not like, you know, monsters popping out of people's chests and biting people's heads off. And, you know, I mean, stuff that's really outrageous is kind of easy to write about, you know, like a big orb appears in the sky and strange looking people come down and vaporize humans. I mean, you know, right. how difficult is that to write about? Right. But the Care and comfort is a very gentle story, but it's frightening nonetheless, because you're talking about. Uh, Science fiction. It's something that doesn't exist. A kind of a a weird twist on vampire that I don't think has ever been told before. The way that he weaves the story and what he puts into the characters' lives and how they relate to each other uh, is very human, very relatable. And the language that he uses, uh, I think, is I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm American and he's American that it seems a little bit more easy to digest. And you can get lost in the story a lot easier. And China's British. Uh yeah. And and maybe that's what it is. It's like, I mean, China's stuff is so brilliant. One of the things I love about a lot of the, the work is that I find myself having to read sentences over and over again. Because I go like, I must be like missing half of my brain. Like, what did he just say? <laughs> you know, I have mm. to read it over. But it's almost like listening to, you know. A uh, saxophone solo uh, by Bird or Coltrane—you go like that is so amazing. You got to listen to it a hundred times, and each time you go, man, I appreciate this even more. And so, I mean, that's that's my relationship to a lot of what uh, China will write is that it's it's so brilliantly written that I have to read it over and over again to really not be distracted by it, you know, from the story. So. Anyway, <laughs> I don't want to go, go off on a rant on China, but uh, yeah, that's that's what I think about. I mean, maybe it's because I grew up, you know, reading uh, Ray Bradbury. You know, I mean, that's that was my first, the first collection of sci-fi was that, and then you know, it's a different genre, really. I mean, to Chinese credit, he's he's right, he's created uh, or up the ante in in that genre like nobody else. So. You know, he's out there on a limb taking all the chances.
0: Are there other authors that you enjoy specifically?
1: Uh, I think uh, I started going through um, the, you know, Philip K. Dick. I uh, Last year, I went through a total like review of all of his work. Um, and that was because my son, ZZ, uh, was talking about it. He just had, he kind of mentioned it like, you know, that he had uh, reread a particular story. And uh, I don't know about anybody else, but sometimes when I, I think back to authors that I read like decades ago, I realize that I, I need to reread the books. And I've done that like twice with Kurt Vonnegut. I absolutely love Kurt Vonnegut's writing. I, I wish I could have known the man. I mean, w- what a fantastic human being. Okay. And the stories that he wrote had such an effect on how I felt about life when I was in high school. And then later, when I, the first time I realized I've got to reread everything that he wrote. you know, um, And mm. it, sometimes you, I'd get in that mood where I just, I, I want to, you know, I don't know what, how to describe what, what Kurt Vonnegut wrote. I mean, I don't know what it is. It's, it's him talking. It's, it's science fiction, but it's commentary. It's, you know, it's a person writing a novel who says the novel is dead and I'm not a novelist, but here it is, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh And and you go through phases where, no, you just want someone who really is taking it, you know, you want to read Harlan Ellison or something like that just to, uh or Niven or someone who takes the genre seriously, uh, you know, just wants to write a real book, you know? So th- those authors, you know, loom big in my mind and I do find myself going back to their writings quite
0: a bit some novellas can be really good too or even short stories I actually I remember reading a Harlan Ellison story about this guy who I think was going he was haunted by his childhood past and he went with someone to visit his house and the person observed like the guy went into his house and never came out like he literally disappeared and I always thought that was kind of an interesting metaphor (laughs) There was this thing called, like, the, the year's best horror stories. I think Carl Edward Wagner had edited these books, like, in the 80s and 90s. And I remember one story that actually successfully combined a haunted house story with an alien invasion story in which people thought the house was haunted when it was, in fact, like a home for an alien to kind of teleport in and out. And so it, com- <laughs> it actually was really interesting. It combined both aspects. And yet it ties into what you're talking about, which is this idea that even though science fiction is uh, – some of science fiction definitely is about technology, etc. Et there's also the superstitious side and, and other beliefs that don't actually jive with science either that kind of can play into those stories in terms of being fearful of things in the world that we don't understand.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, I'm sure I would say uh, the, the craziest thing that I've come across in the last couple of years, I don't know the writer's name. A um, Chinese writer wrote a book called The Three-Body Problem. That's a book that I'll reread at some point, because I remember uh, as I read through that, that was last year, I think that was one of those books where um, after I finished it, I immediately emailed uh, Stu Ham who is a really a fantastic uh, fan of sci fi and has turned me on to so many great books that man, that story like that's the most original story I have ever come across in modern times. You know that I highly recommend that book that is so freaky. The concept of it is just so freaky. Like every chapter you're going like, what really? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and I, yeah, I think it took like six years to translate. I mean, it was, I would imagine that in its native tongue, it's, uh, you know, it's even more thrilling. Uh, but it was translated by someone who really loved the book and really obviously is good at Mandarin and, uh, uh, that, that's a, that is a book I highly recommend. It totally blew my
0: mind. I wish there was a movie, <laughs> you know, I don't know how they'd make it, but. Well, sci-fi films are dicey too. I mean, there's a lot of sci-fi that's really cool, but Hollywood has had that tendency to dumb it down, especially when you had a movie like Alien or Aliens, it became very successful, especially Aliens. You saw a lot of knockoffs of so like big action sci-fi movies, even though some, some of the best sci-fi is very understated. And as you, you no know, doubt deals, deals with things on a smaller level.
1: Yes. Yeah, I think um, the perfect example would be uh, Arthur C. Clarke's Robot*. you know, a fantastic book that stimulates the mind. But w- when you try to bring it to a movie, it, it just immediately dates itself or it's corny or it's sexist or it's something's wrong with it, you know, and and. Or it gets turned
0: into a Will Smith movie.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's still good. And everyone did a great job on it. But if you read the book, when you were young and you, and you realize that it stimulates the mind, the story stimulates the mind about what could happen, what might happen. And, and you know, the, the nature of human beings and how do you capture that in a movie? The movie really has to say, this is the good guy. This is the bad guy. And this is the arc of what happens, you know? (laughs) And that just kind of ruins the story that that's why books are so amazing. Uh, is that they don't have to get dumbed down like that. Again, some of the simple things you can laugh at, it's like a simple joke that you read is funny, but when somebody's telling it and you're watching it, let's say on a TV show, you can't help but look at them and look at how they're dressed and who they are and their age and everything else about them. And that affects how you feel about the joke, how it looks, how it's delivered mm, yeah. visually. But if you just read the joke, you you know, in your mind, maybe it's you telling the joke and so you're laughing hysterically because you think you're funny, <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's like the some of the stories from those writers, you know, Bradbury and Philip K. Dick, you know, they, they're they just better read and because they stimulate you mentally and, and that experience I think is sometimes is way better than watching it played out on stage or in front of a camera.
0: Well, you know, it's funny. I was talking to Richie Faulkner from Judas Priest about Star Wars because he's a huge Star Wars fan. And it, there's, there's a lot of debate over the recent trilogy because I, I think, you know, the original Star Wars movies appealed to kids. It also appealed to the kid inside you. And there's definitely... I've debated this with a couple of friends of mine about the nature of what Star Wars is. And when you get into movies like Rogue One, which get to a darker look at the whole fascist uh, conflict going on, I think some people balked at it a little bit. But, I mean, that's really what it is. It's not just all the pew-pew stuff. It's it's there's something deeper... That can go on, but I think I got simplified at that level, and then so Hollywood approached it that way. I mean, the Han Solo character had more of an evolution because he, he definitely went from being like this this rogue who is not the most honorable guy to actually caring about something and fighting for a cause. But I think there's a, t- a tendency to simplify that stuff down, and then when you try to take that and expand upon it, some people don't like it.
1: Yes, yeah, and, people get get stuck. Isn't that it somewhat... It, it kind of reminds me of this... Uh this question I got uh, about a week ago about uh, records that I was listening to at p- different periods of my career. And, and I realized that I was like one of those horrible fans that got, would get stuck on certain records, you know, like um, mm. I love the Rolling Stones and I'm, I'm stuck on exile on main street and, you know, uh and, I love Prince, and I'm kind of stuck on Sign of the Times, you know. And you know, if somebody told me that, I, you know, I would be first of all thankful that they liked anything that I did, but at the same time, you can't help going, "Well, how come, you know, that dude doesn't like my other records?" <laughs> you know. <And> so, <laughs> well,
0: see, uh, Unstoppable Memento me might actually be my favorite album of yours.
1: Is that right? <laughs> well, wow, that's good
0: because the musicianship it's evolved like i'm a belief you should listen to newer music by older artists and i get into this debate with people all the time on generation x and it drives me nuts like i think like 10 years ago duran duran did one of their best albums ever but people argue with you only the 80s stuff i'm like no really you got to listen to this yeah unstoppable momentum you had these great musicians it's a different vibe than your other albums it's just looser in a lot of ways i think it's because of vinnie caliota too
1: yeah i mean we you know there was a lot of just in that room that was at skywalker as a matter of fact uh i did a lot of records uh up there at Skywalker and, and, uh, that one there again, in that room, As soon as you mentioned it, it's like, I'm teleported back. I'm standing by my amps. I'm looking at Vinny. I'm looking at Chris. <laughs> uh, Mike is up right off to my right. <laughs> if he's not in the piano room behind the glass, he's just like, you know, 10 feet away from me. And, uh, that was really a lot of fun to to watch, you know, especially the title track when, we had done a couple of takes, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of arranging the songs as I'm going, even though we're yeah. recording over uh, Pro Tools sessions that I meticulously laid out at home. Uh, one take I said, hey, guys, uh, you know, to, to, to Mike Fraser, I said, could you extend the ending for us by about, you know, I don't know, eight or 16 bars? And then I said, "Vinnie, what if when we get to the end, we just keep playing as a band, but you just go totally crazy and when, then we'll just end? like on the 16th bar or something like that. And it was one of those things where everybody goes, oh, okay. You know, and we didn't know what he was going to do. Right. And so we get to that part and Vinny goes totally crazy. The look on Chris's face and Mike's face and, and my face and we're all looking at each other like, holy fuck, where is one? You know, I'm sorry, this is probably not the language for your podcast. Bro.
0: No, that's all right. You know, but seriously, I mean, that is, I think that's actually my favorite moment. That ending of that song is my favorite moment on there. And there's is... a lot of great stuff on that album, but I, I'm a drummer and I'm, on, I'm a recreational drummer. I'm not a real drummer like that, <laughs> but I love that. And
1: that moment, though, that's just, I've had a lot of moments in there, like a lot of the chicken foot moments uh, that we did, you know, were live recordings without clicks and, and that were done in that room. You know, just very memorable just because right at the end of a take, everyone would get quiet. You realize you're hyperventilating and you go, oh, my God, we just did something that will never happen again. Thank God they recorded it. (laughs) And so, yeah, when Vinny finished that on the title track, the sound coming from the control room, from everyone who just happened to be there witnessing what Vinny just unleashed on all of us. It was just like and then, of course, the relief that all of us didn't get completely thrown off. By the genius of Vinny, because he does somehow go so completely crazy, and then he
0: brings it right back. Yeah,
1: and yeah, so that oh, it's just a beautiful moment. I'm so happy that
0: wound up on the record. <laughs> what was the vibe like at Skywalker Ranch? Oh, it
1: was so great. I mean, you know, my history there goes way back to '88 when we were do- I was playing with Mick Jagger that year, and we did two tours, and so we had two really big rehearsal. Uh, months. One was in New York at the very uh, beginning of the year, jan- mid to late January through all of February, rehearsing at SAR in uh, downtown. Right. And then the second part after that was for the Japanese tour for the second part of uh, the touring year where we went uh, down under for that one. We, for some reason, decided to go to George's place in, in uh, San Rafael. And I'd never been there, even though I, I lived pretty close by in Berkeley at the time. Uh, So that's when I started uh, driving out there to work. The funny thing is, is we rehearsed in the room that became the studio before it was fully built. There was no separate control room. It was literally just gear sitting on the floor. And we just set up in the middle. We we were a big band about, I don't know, 15 people or something like that. And Mick really wanted to get the staging together. So we needed a big place. So um, that's when I started going out there and, You know, George is always walking around, which is really, really, it's really funny. He's such a really cool guy. And a lot of the people who work there, I've worked with throughout my whole career. Uh, Michael Semenik, uh, Academy Award winning mixer. Uh, He was an assistant on a couple of my albums uh, going uh, back into late 80s and early 90s. Uh, Just a whole bunch of people there have come in and out of my projects and who wound up working as sound designers or mixers uh at skywalker you know i I can remember uh i was working on a chicken foot song i was doing some overdubs and uh, i'm trying to decide whether or not to do this high bit right and i'm just kind of sitting there in the control room with my guitar and i'm playing i'm playing and i turn around and there's george just sitting there and he goes oh hi joe how's it going and you know You have one of those moments where you go, oh, my God, George Lucas is watching me fiddle over and over. But that's, you know, that's what would happen. It's a beautiful, state of the art, creative environment. And and George is casually walking around saying hi to people and making history (laughs) with his films. Is he a fan of yours? I guess so. I never really had a conversation like that with him.
0: It was like casual hellos, not like, did you ever get into a conversation about sci-fi or anything?
1: No, no. I And I think it was because I I was probably starstruck, you know. I, I'd immediately think, like, oh, my God, it's George Lucas, you know. <laughs> and, I, and he would always show up when I was doing something. So it was not like, you know, I was sitting in the cafe or something like that. It, it was always, uh, he realized we were working, and he was very respectful. He'd come in and say hi and listen and say, sounds great, and ask us if everything was all right, and if we needed anything, and then he would be on his way, you know. But it's a great place to to go to. Um, I've lived in the city here for quite a while, for over two decades now, and it's only about a 45 to 50 minute drive uh, out, you know, across the Golden Gate Bridge into the countryside where Skywalker Ranch is. And once you go through those gates, you are in another world it's almost like the prisoner <laughs> <It's> <laughs> very sci-fi except yeah. all good vibes <laughs> no strange uh, uh balloons bouncing in the distance or anything like that but i mean you go in there and you, there's it's a farm and it's a ranch and there's chickens and llamas and organic food and there's a pond and and there's all this stuff going on and then you get to the main building and you walk in and you go my god i could invite 200 musicians into this room to record with me and then these great people work there and and they're so experienced and everyone is just got the greatest vibe there's none of that like city vibe you know like at hyde street or something where you know you take your life in your hands just parking your car and walking to the studio there's none of that it's all very chill are there any
0: smaller sci-fi movies that you like
1: hmm Smaller sci-fi. Well, I don't understand what smaller means. Maybe not
0: well, like a big Hollywood blockbuster, like an indie film or something that's not like a giant you know, shoot 'em up Oh, yeah, yeah. Sunshine, without a doubt. I liked that when it came out. A lot of people had criticisms of it, but I, I kind of dug it.
1: I loved that film. Oh, man. Yeah, my son turned me on to that one. Um, that was one of those films where I, I think when it came out, I looked at it, and for some reason I thought, well, I'll, I'll wait on that one. And then one day I was just talking to ZZ and he mentioned it like that was his favorite, you know? And I thought, Oh, that's right. I was going to watch that thing, you know? And then I just, I just love the vibe of it. I love the way everybody acts in it. I like what they didn't shoot. I love how it ends, you know? And th- and that's a thing because uh, I have a problem with doing what I'm supposed to do. And with authority, I had problem all through school, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's the same problem. Gave my, you know, my parents hell because of it and extends to films that turn out all right, you know, where uh, everybody wins and uh, everyone's embracing brotherly love as they uh, vanquish the aliens. And I'm thinking, well, that's never going to happen. When does where is there a story where the alien comes, annihilates the human race and they win? And that's the end of the movie, you know, (laughs) because for some reason I just I'm just thinking, like, that's how it happens. That's what that's what history tells us, you know, the The advanced civilization always wins, and it's really bad for the civilization that's less advanced, you know, and, but no movie really describes that, but we don't know what happens at the end of Sunshine, except everything blows up,
0: <laughs> and I kind of like that. I'm a huge fan of 2001, and I just actually watched 2010 recently, oh, yeah. Um I mean, 2001 is a different ending, I mean, 2001 is obviously the better movie, but I love the Peter Hyams stuff. I loved Outland. You know, it was like High Noon in Outer Space. There's a look to a lot of early 80s sci fi movies I really dig. It's kind of dark and almost a little grungy, but I, I don't know. There's different types of sci fi movies. There's a movie called Android with Klaus Kinski that came out like 30, mm. 40 years ago. That was really interesting about this, this, this sort of mad scientist and his assistant and this android. And then these, these criminals end up coming on board. They need to seek refuge or something. And it's got all this tension going on. A lot of times, yeah, I, I do appreciate movies that operate on a different. On a different level, because there's actually a lot of really good science fiction out there, but once again, a lot of people only get to think of like Starship Troopers and they don't look at some of the other stuff. Um, I, I almost feel like now movies have gotten too big. Like, I, I love Marvel comics, I love a lot of the Marvel movies, but everything has gotten so big. It's like that Fast and Furious paradigm. Where everything has to get bigger and crazier. And at a certain point, that really shouldn't be what it's about. It should be about a good story or maybe, you know, you don't need to look at something closer on maybe not quite a cellular level, but get get a little bit more into the the details and not just generalizations and not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, larger things,
1: you know, it reminds me again of that of uh, Dan Simmons and Carrie and Comfort, where it's like, you you know, they that would be destroyed by Hollywood. They wouldn't be able to properly set the story up, even though it gets really gruesome. <laughs> I mean, it really does. It, it eventually it. it Gets down to you know blood and guts and fangs and everything, but uh, they wouldn't be able to do it right, and it would kind of it would kind of ruin it. So, um, but you've got me thinking when you said smaller sci-fi films, and and they're not coming to my mind right now, but I know they will hours after our conversation. You're gonna (laughs) wake up in the middle three in the morning. I got it. (laughs) yes (laughs) <laughs> yes <laughs> Oh, I
0: mean, uh, I mean look you're in San Francisco I'm in New York there's a whole quarantine thing going on I mean can you imagine I wonder what the future of pandemic movies is going to be
1: oh Jesus yeah I mean
0: wow because, I... you know a lot of this stuff is coming true a lot of those films are coming true and now we and it, but it's not like World War Z you know it's not like maybe the crazier I, I've, I've actually never seen Contagion I've been meaning to watch it people should just watch the Andromeda Strain the original because it's yeah. all about the scientists. That's really the best thing you should be watching right now.
1: I, you know, um, there will be the, you know, pointing of the finger and, you know, people are bad and that kind of thing. There will be those films that will have to come out. Then there will be the wild conjecture films about, you know, where – who started the virus. Was it, you know, a dream of some crazy military scientist to create <laughs> yeah. ultimate weapon or, you know, did it come from outer space? Was it just on a space rock or something uh maybe uh you know an astronaut uh did something they weren't supposed to and kept something in their pocket from outer space <laughs> that they grew when they were in the space lab, and you know it's exactly. picked up by the cat and and then the cat you know turned into something else and whatever I don't know there's gonna be a bunch of that kind of stuff. I think the weirdest stories though are gonna be what happens to us, and this is you know I don't know if it's science fiction but events shape human beings um, on the smallest level and then on the macro level. You know, the horror of human events changes uh, society. It, it just always does. Yep. People are going to be forced, or right now are being forced into living in a way that's unnatural to them, and something's going to come of it, and different perspectives will come of it, and I think our creative writers are going to surprise us with their observations and how they turn them into sci-fi stories well
0: we're living a sci-fi story and honestly i, I feel like this is a, a, a warning from mother nature and i'm hoping people are going to get that uh, this was where this was bound to happen um yeah
1: i i would hope you know i would hope that people don't see this c- continually try to um understand this as some kind of sci-fi thing and and it, it yeah, kind yeah. of reminds me of Uh, You know, very often uh, it's my own fault, but people always say to me, oh, you're really into sci-fi. You're all sci-fi and all this kind of stuff. Do you believe in aliens? And I always say, you know, I've been into science ever since I was a little kid. We're human beings. We're on a planet. It's spinning. It's in a solar system. We're in the Milky Way. There's billions of galaxies, trillions of, you know, and we don't know where we are. This isn't science fiction, folks. This is science. This is just Mm -hmm. it's reality. So please don't call me a crazy sci-fi nut or an alien believer. It's like, I'm just saying this is reality. It's always felt like that to me. When I was in the second grade, I don't know why I remember this, but all of a sudden my teacher pointed me out into the class and said, you know, Mr. Satriani, why are you staring out into space? I, I guess she caught me staring out the window, right? When I should have been paying attention to whatever the lesson was on the board. But my answer was, to her, I said, do you mean I can see outer space from here? And of course, everybody in the classroom laughed, but I was completely serious because when she said that, I thought, wow, I can see outer space from my desk looking out of the window. it was totally lost on everybody and the teacher who, who of course made me stand outside. It was a Catholic school. So it was a a very brutal nun that made me stand outside for an hour. Uh, Think about what you've done. (laughs) Yes. You know, staring out into space. And I was all I could think of was, man, next chance I get, I'm going out and staring out into outer space because there's stuff to look at out there, you know. But, you know, the the way that we solve this problem uh, or the way that it is being solved right now is that, thank God, we have scientists who uh, are in the here and now and they realize this is not science fiction. This is really happening. This is something that happens in the world. There are viruses, there are humans, dogs and cats. And, you know, th- this is this is life And w- and we can fix it. We just have to come up with a workaround, put our brains to it. So stop thinking about science fiction. They're not aliens from another planet, you know, who want to, Suck all the water out of the planet, or you know, enslave us, or anything like that. It's a virus, so let's let's get our heads straight on this and get to work. You know, so sometimes that gets to me. Uh, you know, that the tendency for people to uh, adopt the most fantastical reasoning for something, and all it does is prolong a logical approach to solving the problem. Uh, it's just like saying I'm I'm overweight because alien beings have invaded you know my body and they crave chocolate chip cookies you know.
0: I wanted to talk about your paintings. There's a piece here called Harmonic Visitors, another one called Ethereal Visitors, another one called The Stair Radiant Creature. There's obviously some of sci-fi stuff creeping here into your work. Yeah,
1: yeah, it, well, if you could see what I see from here, from this chair, because out, out on the other side of my music room is what's become the art room and there's a, you know, there's about a hundred plus of my my paintings out there. Oh, wow. Looking for space, (laughs) leaning up against everything. And uh, yeah, it's pretty weird looking, uh, the stuff that I paint and uh, most of it, you know, has come from just feelings though. It's not, I'm not thinking that people from Andromeda, you know, (laughs) look like this. I'm just saying this is how it feels sometimes, and and this is how I feel sometimes. So that's that's really the reasoning for some of that stuff. But when, but here's here's a problem that I've got right now, which is the art company that I've been working with, Scene Four, right. um, You know, have asked me to title all my paintings and sign them, which you know I never do. Um, because I was never thinking of sharing them with with the world but now that we're thinking about doing that I realize I've got this work ahead of me I've only titled about 10 of them and I realize I have to come up with names for all these things and as I start looking at them it's starting a uh, an interesting process inside of me where I'm, I'm you know looking inward again saying boy Joe why did you you know Why does that person have, you know, no ears and the eyes are dripping blood and the hands are all distorted looking? And I have got to answer those questions and I've been avoiding it. (laughs) (laughs) Now that I'm sheltered in place, I think that's what I really probably have to get to is uh, getting this work done uh, before next year. uh, Because I think they want to take it on the road, you know.
0: The Harmonic Visitors, it says edition of 25. It's it's what GICLEE was the material that you're using.
1: Oh, oh, the the material there. So, well, first of all, the guys at Scene Four, uh, Ravi and Corey, they they have a very interesting way of creating artwork. They're co- they're conceptual artists, and um, Corey is a conceptual artist. Ravi is a is a real uh, painter and and manipulator of digital art. And when they originally came to me, they, they they had done about thirty or forty drummers, and they wanted to start doing guitar players. And they photograph you in the dark. Wearing an LED laced glove as you play and perform, and time lapse, and then they take those photographs and they manipulate them uh, in the computer, and then they and then it goes to uh, printing where they do a final color manipulation. And while we were going through the the beginning stages, the photographing, and we were taking a break, and they were asking me about if I did any drawing or painting. I started to show them what I was doing. And they said, well, we should do some stuff where we combine the two. So we did a few where um, we kind of uh, – I'm, I'm sure it wasn't Photoshop, but it was something uh, like that, where they took something I had done on a canvas and something they had created with me um, with the photographs and the computer, and they put them together to create an original piece. And And then to take it a step further, they produced – A number of these uh prints and then had me paint on top of them uh which was really a fantastic process because i you know i'm usually looking at a blank canvas and here all of a sudden there was all this art that i had to work with but Mm. that's the 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 background story to eventually answering your question about the the uh the titles yeah i i did have to go through that self-examination to say what am i thinking here because i i usually don't you know what i mean i just move i improvise i move forward and when i'm done i don't try to justify or explain to myself i just move on to the next thing uh very much like a guitar solo you know and uh but i i realized no this has to be titled people have to be able to call it something yeah i would just improvise being inspired by the work that was in front of me and uh, i did like the idea that you you conjure something through sound. And and this started with really the Crystal Planet. I don't know if you're aware of uh, this story that I've created with a fellow musician, Ned Evitt, called Crystal Planet. We've been working on it uh, along with uh, uh, Brendan Small for about six years now. Okay. Uh, we've...
0: Inspired by your solo album?
1: No. Actually, it's th- that story is different, how we wound up. Getting it. It was it was basically we had the Unstoppable Momentum record inspired my friend uh, Ned Evitt to create uh, a video that we could play for the live performances. And every night I'd watch this thing while I was playing and I called him and I said, you know what, there's a story here we should create an epic, like Star Wars epic size story about Crystal Planet. And then we started writing this story that involved immense time travel and uh, an alien world and uh, the reluctant wow. hero who played guitar. and just, It was a fantastical story. It has gone through a million rewrites. We've written scripts. We've done storyboards. We've done decks. We've done... <laughs> Video demos, uh, last October, Heavy Metal Magazine uh, put out a pilot version uh, for us, animated, uh, that uh, Brendan wrote the script for us. And um, we, we are in the process of trying to obviously sell the idea to a lot of different forms. We, originally, we just wanted to do uh, a series, uh, episodic series, uh, animated. And uh, Wow. Um, anyways, the idea of... Sound eliciting something foreign or alien came from the story where Ned and I uh, came up with this idea, the story that the, our reluctant hero figured out a way uh, to extract uh, an unusual energy source by using music. But he didn't know where it came from. And I don't want to tell you the rest of the story, but right. uh, but that was the the idea that sound, you know, would conjure something up. And as I was looking at those paintings that I had a hand in creating, I started to think about that. Like when I'm on stage. Uh, and I'm playing, obviously I'm giving a concert, I'm playing with my buddies on stage, I'm playing with my fans and the audience and everything, but there might be something else that happens that we're unaware of, that the actual harmonic consonants and dissonance would actually conjure up or call from far away uh, something foreign, something alien, and they would be attracted to it. All right. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like that story about, you know, somebody sending out a... A message, not thinking they're going to reach anything horrible, but unfortunately, you know, they wake up the sleeping dragon a uh, light years away, who goes, "Hmm, is there a meal over there?"
0: Oh boy! <laughs> now, are all the paintings that are done are they, are they done in collaboration with Scene Four? The ones that you've seen on the Scene Four uh, website, oh, on are, your site, actually, Joe Art.
1: Yes, yeah. So that site, that is all the stuff that I've done w- with them. But the, the the other canvases I've been talking about are the ones that um, they're just beginning to see, actually, that we that I've been doing on my own. I You know, I used to, going back to some of their, boy, I think the Extremist album, yeah, the Extremist album in 92 probably had the first time some of my doodles were included in any kind of uh, published work, just in the CD booklet. And then slowly I started putting the artwork on straps, and pics and, you know, T-shirts and things like that. And then started working with other artists and, and uh, my son's artwork. Uh, my wife's an artist as well. And she started doing the straps the last, I don't know, four or five years. You know, it was basically my wife and my son that finally taught me how to get out of the computer and out of just using the pen and learning how to deal with uh, canvas and paint and brushes and so that's sort of been the arc the last couple of years is trying to to move into a larger format. That's what I'm hoping to do next year at some point. I mean, we were going to tour like crazy this year and then next year figure out a two-month period where I could take all the paintings on tour. And we thought, well, by then you'll have 300 pieces and wow. the gallery can then choose from that, you know. Um, so now it looks like I'm going to have a lot more time on my hands to paint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If they let me out of my house to go to the the art supply store, uh, then that's what I'll do. I'll go get some supplies and, and uh, uh, I'll have some fun getting all dirty with paints.
0: What is jiggly on canvas? What does that mean?
1: It's a medium. There's lots of things that are so fascinating that you can use to create depth uh, on canvas. One of my favorite things um what is that stuff called i'm looking at it across the room there but i can't see it it's a it's a clear uh gel that you don't see but it it attracts light and it can raise uh, you can use it to raise um the topography of of the artwork and this is something that goes you know back hundreds of years masters would to get you to to look at a painting and somehow get drawn to the light on the eye they would literally build up the surface of the canvas by using whatever it was, egg, plaster, <laughs> anything they had laying around, uh, it became gesso eventually. and uh, But then there's this other stuff now that you can use that's either, you know, opaque or clear or matte or it, it can glisten like crazy and create a sort of a brightness. So that's kind of like what we use. We use all these different effects to, to uh, eventually enhance how the eye and how light hits painting and what it will bring into focus. Yeah,
0: you know, a couple of the pieces here that are interesting too: Ghost on the Hill and Hill of the Skull have a little bit of a Francis Bacon kind of quality to them.
1: Yes, yeah, there's you know I'm I'm heavily influenced by probably I, I would say maybe what do they call it symbolism like uh Redon R E D O N, you know the uh, French painter. I just right. think this stuff is so crazy. I really relate to it. I just love how he just took complete chances with everything that he did, with the colors and the just darkness and the Modigliani as well. I just love the what he conveys with the distortion of the human body and the faces right. and how he still nails you with those eyes. It's just really beautiful. Um Those two pieces are actually the one uh, that looks really a lot like Jesus. That's actually... A funny process that I take—I was taking these small cards, greeting cards, kind of things, and right. would uh, use waterco- watercolor uh, pencils on them. And I would draw and overdraw, you know, a, a figure, and then I would take it and I'd go to the sink and I would run water over them and very carefully manipulate uh, the paper to get just the right amount of distortion going and what happens is the color explodes sometimes you get drip lines or sometimes you just see everything get blotchy and you have to be really careful because it's basically within about 3 seconds you've got to stop you know it's just it's it's a beautiful improvisation of art that goes on and then you got to wait and sit and make sure it dries at the the right angle that you want to create that look of which colors bleed into which and which just blur and then uh, the other one, the I think it was called Hill on the Skull. I don't have them in front of me right now. Oh, no, it's Ghost Ghost, Ghost on the there. Hill. That one is actually an acrylic painting on something that's about uh, 16 by 24, something like that. And uh, that came about because one of the the pieces of art that they generated looked so stark and there and there was a what looked like a crucifix in the background. And I was just thinking like, how how are we going to work with this? It was the one thing that was gray that they sent me. Everything was like intense colors, but that one was very gray. And I had just painted that other painting and I just thought, what if they went together somehow? So I did a little, you know, junior Photoshopping of the two things together. I sent it to Ravi and Corey and they absolutely loved it. And they said, can you know will you let us do it better <laughs> and of course i said yes of course you know so i just sent them the raw material uh i sent them just a high-res version of the of the painting and the, and they were able to combine them in, in a beautiful way and um it's a the powerful story uh you know hill of the skull that that goes back to a I always screw up his name, Uh, Cahill Gibran, the the poet. I was reading a book of his, God, 30 plus years ago. And it was a book about, and there were poems. One was a a reworked translation of somebody who witnessed the crucifixion of Christ. And the place um, was referred to as the Hill of the Skull. And then that inspired me to write the song Hill of the Skull that's on the Surfing with the Alien record right and i've just I always thought that that was so much more evocative um, than anything that I had learned in Catholic school. It just sounded right to my ear for for an event uh, that they 're trying to describe in the Bible. It was so grotesque. any attempt to make it sound uh, uh, religious to me didn 't seem right. It seemed like this is a you know a grotesque act of humanity and and finally, Hill of the Skull. <laughs> As the location yeah. made so much more sense, you know, as somebody tells you, points to and says that's a hill of a skull, you immediately turn away and walk in the other direction, you know. <laughs> so, anyway, it's funny how things come back. Sure. Uh, and and boy, there's a there's a title for a. Uh, For a science fiction story or a short movie, I'm surprised no one's come up with it yet.
0: Well, it looks like you've got all these different things that are coming together. You've got got a story you're working on, you've got uh, painting, you've got music. It seems like you're probably more prolific now than when you were younger.
1: Yes. I I think uh, when I was younger, I had so much more energy. And what did I do? I probably spun my wheels like crazy trying to work one thing. And then uh, one of the benefits, uh, if you're lucky enough to hang around for a long time, is you begin to relax and channel your energy and realize that you actually do have time. And in my case, it means, yeah, you don't have to practice eight hours a day. How about three? And then <laughs> for a few of the other hours, make sure you live a life, go out and love and and get loved. and uh, and And then maybe paint and draw and read and go to movies and hang out with your friends and it all becomes an artistic life you know and i think both me and ned realized that a while ago and we started satch tunes like i said around six years ago and we've got about 20 properties that we have developed most of them are sci-fi and some of them a little lighter a little bit more humanistic than the crystal planet idea and we keep going, you know. It's a, it's a business. We haven't sold anything yet, <laughs> but uh, we're having fun doing it. We we love doing it. Uh, Ned's still a performer. He still goes out and sings and 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 plays, and uh, and we keep making records uh, while we're busy with our story, <laughs> and 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 our uh, uh house, so to speak. Um, but I I love it. I mean, I uh, I can't imagine you know, not living this creative life and, um, the sci-fi and the music, every it's all part of it.
0: Yeah. As I get older, I, there's more things I want to do. I think when you're younger, you do, you also have extra time and you don't think about it. You get older. So I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I still have all these things I want to do. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Time, time just, boy, it just flies by. And, uh, yeah, now's the time I often tell people, you know, uh, when I've done clinics and people, you know, bring up how they, they want to get everything together and wait and, I, and and you know for the right moment and I, I always tell them, Hey, the moment is now. Your audience is here. You need to make music, share it immediately, and then make more music and just keep going. Don't don't be thinking there's some moment where you finally debut. Don't hold back. You know, you have to live life. And you have to put that life into your music and you have to share it and you got to do it right now.
0: That wraps up this latest episode of Side Jams. Please join me for the next installment, which will feature pop singer-songwriter Chloe Lowery. The tunes used in this episode are from Fox and the Law and I licensed them through AudioSocket. As always, thank you very much for listening.